Oscars for lunch. Pretty crazy. So they set them up. I found that and I thought, man, I have to show this in church. They set them up individually and the one doesn't even change, man. 80 days, 90 days, no change at all. Because it's so full of salt, it just dries out. It doesn't do anything else. But the other one, the organic one, I recommend eating organic. Probably all going to be surviving till about 200 years after we get in the ground with all the salt that we eat. But I thought it was interesting because individually... The one is preserved. But if they put them together, then all of a sudden the other one infects, you know, the good one, right? Good. The one that's not, you know, decomposing. The one that's not decaying. And I thought it was a good analogy for what we're going to be talking about today as we talk about salt and we talk about light and our influence over others. And do we get contaminated with the world or do we have, you know, the preserving aspects of salt within us? Um, Emperor Constantine, uh, when he was ruling the Roman Empire, made Christianity the national religion about 320 AD. But Licinius, who was controlling the eastern half of the empire, he was still suppressing Christianity, he was still persecuting them. And at one point, Licinius, who was controlling the other half, said all of the soldiers, everybody that is serving in the army, has to sacrifice to Roman gods. That's part of the deal. And so there was this one army. They were known as the Thundering Legion. And they were up in the mountains area. It was in the wintertime. And the captain said, all right, guys, it's time to sacrifice. It's time to worship. And there were 40 guys, 40 guys in this army that said, we're not going to do it. We're Christians. We won't do it. And so they had this big argument. And the captain said, listen, if you don't, there's going to be serious consequences. And they said, we're not going to bow the knee. So they were whipped. They were put in chains. They said, we're still not going to relent. And being wintertime, they were next to this lake that had frozen over. He said, all right, strip them down and put them out on the lake naked. And so these 40 guys are out on the lake completely naked. And he says, just to torture them, he sets up baths right on, you know, the side of the lake, warm water. And he says, listen, just, just deny God. Just come in. Listen, he'll forgive you, right? That's what you guys say. So just deny God. Come in and you can get in one of these warm baths and be saved. And the 40 men would sit there and huddle, and they were singing, and they were praying, you know, 40 brave soldiers for Christ. And after a while, one of them couldn't take it anymore. And so he got up, and he stumbled over the side. Well, there was this one soldier who had been watching this whole thing play out, and he got ticked when that one guy bailed. Like, he's watching this, and he's like, I want what those guys have. Like, whatever they have is real, because they are going to die for what they believe. Not just sacrificing the Roman gods because it's something, you know, ritualistic that we do. I want what these guys want. And they influenced him. And he was so upset. He was so won over by these other 39 guys that stayed that he stripped off all of his stuff and went out and joined them on the ice. And there were 40 brave soldiers for Christ once again. Now, they all did die on that lake. And unfortunately, the guy who bailed and went to the side to get in the bath, he died too because he was hyperthermic. And he hypothermic, and he jumped into the bath, and it killed him. So they all died, 40, living for Christ, influenced that one guy. He got saved. Great story, but it's how we influence others. It's our witness towards people. It's the salt and light that we are to be to the world that is supposed to win them over. And the Christian community is a committed group of individuals that are living for Christ together. 
We're supposed to be a family of faith, right? A committed community. And I talked about last week that this Christian life is not supposed to be lived individually. We know that. But lots of times in the scriptures, we read that word you and we think about it directed at us personally. When Jesus is giving this speech, the King's speech, and he says you, he means his disciples. All of you, all of you together are to be living this thing out. Throughout the scriptures, God encouraged us to come together as a community to build each other up in our faith. And like this story, the, the stronger ones compensate, you know, the weaker ones. They lift them up. They bring them together. And in the process, we witness to the world. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Last week, we finished up the first 12 verses. We finished up the Beatitudes, you know, those, those principles of a, of a citizen of the kingdom. And ultimately, if we live those out, if we live out those principles of the kingdom, those characteristics, it's going to end in persecution. It's going to get a reaction out of the world in one way or another because it goes against their flesh. It lives against the sin and the way the culture is devolving. And when we live for righteousness sake, Jesus says, you are going to be persecuted. But what are they going to see in us when that happens? Are they going to see faithfulness? Are they going to see, you know, peace in the middle of suffering? That's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to read our text. We're going to be in Matthew 5. Once again, we're going to do verses uh, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, one of the main functions of Christians in this world is to be an influence. We are to be influencers. We are not to be the ones that are influenced by the culture. We are supposed to be the ones that are shaping society. But that hasn't really been the case, not in our country in the last, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years. Listen to what can happen when the church functions effectively. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a theologian and pastor, said this, Most competent historians are agreed in saying that what undoubtedly saved England from a revolution such as that experienced in France at the end of the 18th century was nothing but the evangelical revival. This was not because anything was done directly, but because masses of individuals had become Christians and they were living this better life and had this higher outlook. The whole political situation was affected. The great acts of parliament which were passed in the last century were mostly due to the fact that there were such large numbers of individual Christians found in the land. And we're, we're given the ability to change things, either for good or for bad. The Holy Spirit empowers us to change things for good, for Christ, and our flesh wants to change things for the worst. And Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, this is towards the end of his ministry, Jesus prayed, he said, Father, I do not pray that you would take them out of the world, right? We're here for a reason. We're here to influence, to affect the world for Christ. But he says, protect them from the evil one. Protect them from the mold, basically. They're here to be salt and light. Protect them from the evil one that wants to take them out. We are to occupy and we are to influence while we're here until Jesus comes back. So how do we do that? Well, Jesus here gives us two great analogies, um, how we can be effective, and it's salt and light. 
We're to be salt and light. Um, while these are different, they serve a common purpose, and that is to combat the corruption and the darkness that we see in the world today. It's to combat the corruption. The world needs salt because it's decaying, both morally and, and materially. Um, and then it needs light because we are walking in darkness, in a dark place. This is a biblical worldview that the world is inherently sinful. It is devolving downwards. Evil is getting greater. And we need to be those that are salt and light influence on the world. One of the strangest things to me, um, at least in the church community, is the save the planet movement, okay? Because we're not going to save the planet. We know this place is a sinking ship. It's, it's got a one-way ticket to destruction. I used to go to a church with a guy, and he was very fond of saying, it's all going to burn, right? Something happened to your car, got dented, it's all going to burn. Something happened to your house, it's all going to burn. And that's true. We know that. At the end, it's all going to burn in fervent heat. We know that. But I'm not saying that we shouldn't, you know, be good stewards of what we're given. We should be good stewards. But it's all going to come to an end. But we are to be those that can slow the process, right? Anyone who thinks that this world is evolving upwards is deceived. It's not evolving upwards. It's going downwards. We have increased in our knowledge, both uh, scientifically and medically, and technologically, educationally, all these things we have increased in, but all of that is external. It hasn't done one thing to change the nature of who we are as human beings. Our knowledge have grown, but our morals have continued to decay. Our confidence has increased, but our peace of mind has diminished. Our accomplishments have increased, but our sense of purpose and our sense of meaning have shrunk over the years. All of these things, all they've done is create new ways to express and promote our sinfulness so that we can destroy ourselves in faster and in you know, quicker ways. And so that's all that all of these things have done. We think that they are incredible advancements you know, in the human race when in reality, some of these have only served to our detriment. Uh, King David wrote in Psalms 51, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, it doesn't mean that David was illegitimate or that his mother was sinning. It just means that we all have a human or you know, a sinful nature. We're born with a sinful nature. Um, now, we know, we've been told for a long time now that utopia is right around the corner. Like, we are this close from achieving the peak of human existence. But that hasn't, that hasn't happened yet. Um, for so long, the scientific world has been trying to create right? Artificial intelligence, AI, you know, try to create something that is so close to being human and yet without all the faults. They haven't been able to realize this vision yet. They haven't been able to, they've been close, but they haven't been able to do that. So some of them have abandoned this strategy. And so what they're trying to do now is they are trying to make humans more like robots, more like AI. And it's happening right now. There, we were listening to an interview with a guy last week and what he calls humans now is Hackable animals is what he called them. Humans are hackable animals. And what he wants to do is he wants to create, you know, in us a technology that is inserted into us that so we can be hooked up to the internet so that our minds can be that way. And then we would be controlled, technically. We could be hacked individuals. And so this is the way that our species is evolving. That's what he says. This is the next evolution in humanity is for humans to become more robotic, to be more 
you know, uh, machine-like. But all of these technological advancements aren't going to be able to separate our sin nature from our humanness. It's not going to be able to do that. It's not going to eliminate it because it's hardwired into us. The prophet Jeremiah uh, said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Isaiah said in chapter 1, verse 5, he said, Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. We're molding inside and out without Christ. Uh, if you read Romans 1, if you, just, you just point people to Romans 1, and that is the you know, most obvious portion of Scripture that describes the, you know, the way humanity is devolving, the downward spiral that's happening. That's the state of the world. Uh, that's the future. Um, just kind of like that organic hamburger. Uh, it's just going to keep on decaying. But God has a plan. And his plan is you and me being salt and light in the world. And it's interesting because there are several applications of salt and what it does. And several interpretations, honestly, of this scripture that Jesus is talking about. Uh, the Romans believed that outside of the sun and water, that salt was actually one of the most important elements that they could possess. Uh, oftentimes, the soldiers were paid in salt. They were compensated with salt. That's where the, uh, the saying, he's not worth his salt, came from. He's not, he's not worth what you're paying him. And they were you know, compensated with salt. The word that was used in the Latin was salarium, which is where we get the word salary today. Uh, it was a very precious thing in that culture, a very important commodity. And we look throughout the Old, Old Testament, we see the importance of salt, and it's symbolizing purity. One of the things that salt is a symbol of is purity. It has healing properties. Now, there's a story in 2 Kings where Elisha is summoned to Jericho. They have rebuilt Jericho, and they bring Elisha there, and they say, listen, this is a beautiful town, but it only has a couple problems. The water is poisoned. That's a problem. And because of that, the fruit, you know, the, the fields are unfruitful. Everything around here is sick. And so they bring him in and he says, bring me, bring me a bowl. Bring me a bowl, put some salt in it. And we're going to read about that in a second. But over time, Jericho had become contaminated. The water had become contaminated. The fields had become contaminated. And the symbolism is important because fields in the Bible represent what? The world, right? Fields in the Bible represent the world. Jesus told the parable of the farmer who was sowing seed in the field. The seed is the gospel message. Um, was also talking about uh, the treasure that's hidden in a field. You guys are the treasure. We're the treasure in the field that he finds. Uh, there's also the parable of the tares and the wheat. The wheat being, you know, the believers, the true believers, and the tares being the false believers, the ones that say they're Christians, but they're not really living that way. Then, of course, we had the mustard seed. Jesus says that this is what the kingdom is like. It's like a mustard seed that grows into this huge tree. And so fields, symbolic of the world. But they said the water was bad. And water in the scripture symbolizes um, cleansing, you know, healing. And, you know, we're, we're told that we are to be washed by the cleansing of water by the word. And so the word of God is a cleansing. It's like water to us. Um, we also know that we're supposed to have, you know, wells of living water bubbling up from inside of us. We're supposed to be drinking from the source. Jesus told the woman at the well, he said, the water that I give, a man will never be thirsty again. He'll have water welling up from within him. So this is what happens with Elisha. He, he says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. 
And he went to the spring of water and he threw salt in it. And he said, thus saith the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water's been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. So that's interesting. The salt, the healing properties, the purifying properties, purified the water and cleansed it. But that's not what happens if you put salt in a field. It has the opposite effect. If you salt the field, it's going to make it unfruitful. Enemies would often come through a place and they would walk through the fields and they would salt the fields and that would change like the pH balance of the soil. You couldn't plant anything. Nothing would grow there. So this gives you something to think about. You know, while we need springs of living water bubbling up inside of us, if we have become contaminated by the world, we need to be cleansed. We need God's life inside of us if we are going to be pure springs of water that are going to bring life, that are going to flow out to the fields, right, and cleanse them, make them fruitful. That's what we need inside of us. But conversely, maybe there are some fields in our lives that need to be salted. Like maybe we have planted things in our life that have grown up as weeds that are choking things out and making things unfruitful that need the salt of God's life inside of us to kill those fields off. They need to be purified. God also told the Israelites that all their offerings at the temple had to be offered with salt. Every sacrifice, all the offerings had to have salt as a part of it. Leviticus 2.13 says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant of your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Now, why would, G- why would God make the Jews bring salt to every sacrifice? I mentioned that it was used as a form of payment. It was also used to ratify or to seal agreements between two parties. If you were you know, making a deal, one of the things you would do is go before the elders. You would eat salt together. It spoke of permanence. It spoke of something that was long-lasting, that was precious. And um, it was a witness between the two people and between the elders, that this was serious. And if this agreement was broken, there was going to be serious consequences. And we're told that God made a covenant of salt. It's mentioned twice in the Bible. One of them is God made a covenant of salt with King David. In 2 Chronicles 13, 5, it says, Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? And God kept his word. When Jesus came, the son of David came, and he was given, you know, the rule. He was going to rule and reign in the hearts and minds of those who believed in him until he comes again. Then he will rule over the earth, and he will rule over the new heaven and the new earth. So salt also adds flavor. It purifies, but it also adds flavor. You and I are God's image bearers in the world. We are to be those that bring flavor with us wherever we go. Uh, We're not to be dark and depressing Eeyores in the world. That's not what we're called to be as Christians. We're called to be salty. Uh, We're to be a blessing. We're not to be a stench to the people that we come in contact with. Um, But unfortunately, the world has found the church to be less than flavorful. In fact, they, they see us as taking the flavor out of life because what we bring with a saltiness is a life and a flavor, but they are kind of like, you know, tied bought into the lie and the decay of sin and death. We, uh, we're stifling and restrictive. That's what we're called as Christians. Uh, instead of bringing a refreshing rain to the atmosphere, we are often accused of raining on their parade, right? This is kind of depends on what kind of parade it is. 
But uh, Woodrow Wilson, there's a story of Woodrow Wilson, the president, right? He goes into a barber shop to get his hair cut. And he's just sitting there getting his haircut when all of a sudden somebody walks in. He said when he walked in and he started talking, you could tell the atmosphere in the barbershop changed. Like there was something about this guy. He sat down right next to him and is getting his haircut. And Woodrow Wilson is listening to this guy talk, the things that he's saying, the interest that he's taking in the man that's cutting his hair. And he's listening to this conversation and the whole mood of the barbershop gets elevated. I've kind of, I've gotten my hair cut in barbershops my whole life, and the atmosphere of a barbershop ain't always great, but the whole mood changed, and he was trying to understand what was going on, what, who is this guy, and so after he got his hair cut finished, he hung out in the barbershop just to kind of see what their reaction was after this man left, and he realized after the fact that he had been in an evangelistic service because it was D.L. Moody who was the man that was getting his hair cut next to him. And we are to be those, wherever we go, that elevate the conversation, that elevate the atmosphere that we walk into. Uh, After Christianity became a recognized religion in the Roman Empire, one of the emperors, Emperor Julian, said this about Christians, sadly. He said, have you looked at these Christians closely? They're hollow-eyed, pale-cheeked, flat-breasted. Their mood and their lives are away. They're unspurred by ambition. The sun shines for them, but they don't see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they desire it not. All their desire is is to renounce and suffer that they may come to die. Not a glowing, you know, review of Christians in that period of time um, who weren't necessarily being salt and light in the middle of, you know, their culture that they were a part of. Um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, the writer, he said that he might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen that he knew didn't look and act so much like undertakers. He's like, I don't want to be like those guys, man. I want to go into the church and the ministry because these guys look dead. They don't look like they have life inside of them. However, I will say that even when the church is you know, operating effectively and we are salt and we are light and we are speaking truth into the world, the world does not appreciate or tolerate necessarily what we have to bring because they are connected to, they don't want to let go of their sin. Uh, Paul reminds the church in Corinth, he says, we are to be the aroma of life. We're to be the fragrance of Christ to those who are being saved. To those whom the Holy Spirit's eyes are opening, we are to be an aroma of life. But to those who are perishing, we're like the stench of death. So it's not up to us to be the ones that do the saving. We're supposed to be shining. We're supposed to be the salt and the light. The Holy Spirit will do that, and he will determine which ones we are an aroma of life to and the ones that we're the stench of death to. So to that end, whenever you place salt, another thing that salt does, whenever you place it in a wound, it stings, right? It has a purifying effect. And so when we speak truth to people where we are the aroma of death, it's going to sting because it speaks against the sin in their life, their lifestyle, It's really the opposite. This interpretation is really the opposite of bringing flavor, right? It's bringing something that stings to them. And we've talked about this in prior meetings, that when we live our lives, the way that we live our lives should prick people's consciousness, right? When they see our lives and how we live and the things that we talk about, it should make them a little uncomfortable in the presence of the gospel message. Um, Salt purifies. It has healing properties. But the problem is that most of the world doesn't want to be healed from their sinful disease. They just don't. But we don't know who that is. You know, that's one of the um, traps of um, Calvinism is that 
It's all predetermined. You know, we're all predestined, so don't worry about, you know, you don't really have to worry about witnessing because, you know, God knows those who are his. And, uh, but the, the truth is we don't know who are his. And God knows, but we don't. So our job is to be those that help slow the decay so that as many people as can have can be brought in. So it stings the world. Um, the church's attempt sometimes to make the gospel more palatable has led to them um, in wanting to be attractive to the world, minimizing teachings on sin. And that has happened. It's happening in our culture in a big time way right now to make the gospel more palatable, to make it seeker sensitive, to bring people in. Um, they have blurred the lines and not taught necessarily about sin. And we talked last week that that is really a fear of rejection. When we don't talk about sin, when we don't encourage people to live a lifestyle that lines up with Christ, that lines up with the scriptures, there's a fear of rejection there. And that fear of rejection um, is a way of hiding our witness. And when we hide our witness, we are, in effect, denying Christ. We, we can't be afraid to offend others. Uh, and that stings the world. Whenever we call out sin, it stings. And for the Christian, we recognize the truth and the healing that that can bring. Uh, but to the world, it's just an irritation. But please remember that a gospel message that does not confront sin is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, wherever Jesus went, he preached truth and life, but he also preached repentance. That's how he started off his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. If you want to know whether or not a message is valid, does it speak out against sin? Um, we're not to be affirming of everyone and everyone's lifestyles. Everyone is welcome, right? We're to love everybody, but we're not to affirm everybody and everybody's life choices. Um, for those that are caught up in sin, the message should sting. Salt also creates thirst. Uh, we talked a few weeks ago about how we should be those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. And... Um, while it's going to sting some, hopefully it creates a thirst in others when they see what we have inside of us. When they see God operating inside of us, it should create a thirst in them. That's why Jesus said, if any man thirst, come to him. He's the one that will quench their thirst. He's the one that will give them living waters that will be flowing up outside of him. When I was a teenager, we would gather at somebody's house, at one of our friend's house, and we would play basketball um, all the time. And so I remember this one day in particular, it was extremely hot, and we took a break, and we went inside to get a drink, to take a break. And he had a huge bottle of Gatorade. And we thought, man, the thirst quencher, that's what we're going to get. That was the motto of Gatorade, the thirst quencher. And so we started drinking it, and we, we found that the more we drank, the more thirsty we were. Like it wasn't quenching our thirst because, I don't know if you know this, but Gatorade actually has quite a bit of sodium in it, sodium, salt, that actually makes you thirsty. When you sweat, you lose salt and you lose electrolytes and all this stuff, but it actually makes you thirsty. We drank so much, our sides were hurting. We could not quench our thirst. What we needed was water. We needed water, but we were drinking all this Gatorade, all this sodium that just served to make our thirst worse. And if we're truly being the salt of the earth, we should look like an oasis to the world. And here's what I mean by that. As people gather around us, as they get to know us, 
um, as we get to know them, they should realize that there's something different about you and I, and it should create a thirst in them. Um, you know, we talk about Jesus, and we talk about the church, and we talk about our hope for the future, and we're not anxious, and we're not worried, and we, that, we have that optimism that should resonate in other people and say, I want some of that. I have a thirst for what they've got. But what happens too often is we try to be the salt and the water. Jesus didn't say you're the water of the world. He said you're the salt of the world. You're to make people thirsty, but he's the one that satisfies. And if people just drink from us, they're going to continue to be thirsty. It's not going to satisfy. We're, to make, we're supposed to make people thirsty. Jesus is the one who satisfies. That makes sense. But the primary thing that salt does is it preserves. As Jesus followers, we're to have a preserving influence in this world uh, that's decaying spiritually. Um, Almost all of our food has sodium. I mean, I, I look at these labels and it's like impossible to find anything that doesn't have salt in it in some form. Um, but there's another reason why it was so important to the people of that day. You know, you couldn't just buy stuff. They didn't have refrigerators. So if you bought things, you had to put salt on it or in it to keep it for any amount of time. So all of the meat that they had had to be salted, which sounds awesome. But that's what they would do. They would preserve it. It would slow the decaying process in that day. They needed a preservative. That's just another reason why salt was important. Now, as I said before, uh, we're not going to save the planet. It's got a one-way ticket to destruction. But we can slow the decaying process spiritually. And here's the reason why we do that. Second Peter 3.9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's not slow, he's patient. And we are to be the ones that activate ourselves to help slow the process so that people can come into the kingdom. We talk about how bad things are now. Um, when Jesus takes the Christians out of this world, when Satan is unchecked and evil runs wild, it's going to decay rapidly. It's only going to take seven years from the world to go from what we know is normal to the pits of hellish despair. Only seven years when all the Christians are taken out of the world. When all that salt is taken out, it's going to decay and rot very quickly. That's why wherever you are in life, whatever your sphere of influence is, whether it be schools, whether it be government, whether it be, you know, your place of employment, we are to be those that are salt. We need to be those that are preserving, that are slowing the process. Everything is devolving around us, but we can slow the process by being those that influence others for the kingdom. So if salt is hidden, salt's hidden, light's obvious, right? Salt's working under the surface, Light is working outside. Salt kind of has an indirect influence, but light has an outward influence. Um, but we're to be both. If we show our saltiness, if I can say it that way, through our lives, through our example, the way we live, then our light is the things that we say, right? The things that we teach. Those are the outward things that are directly influencing people. Um, salt's working on the inside and it's working on keeping away the negative. The light is working on the outside and it's trying to reveal truth. It's exposing things that are out there. Uh, Psalms 36, nine, David writes, for with you is the fountain of life in you, in your light, do we see light? And in first John one, uh, five through seven, it says, this is the message that we've heard from him and proclaim to you 
that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We're, we're only lights in so much as we reflect him. You guys have heard the analogy, right? Jesus is the sun, the S-U-N, and we are like the stars that are simply reflecting his light to the world. We're to be those that carry that light into the darkness. We're to illuminate and be guides for people. Uh, most of the time, we don't have trouble being salt. Uh, that's kind of easy, right? We can kind of work under the surface. We can kind of be good examples, but being light is riskier. That's speaking things into other people's lights. It's affecting them directly. But we're not to hide our light. If you grew up in church, you sang the song, this little light of mine, right? I'm going to let it shine. And it sounds kind of strange when he says, don't put it under a basket. Well, of course you wouldn't put it under a basket, right? It's going to burn the place down. You're supposed to put it on a lampstand. But that's what we do with our witness sometimes. We take our light and we hide it for a little bit. We take it out on Sundays, but guess what, guys? We're all the lights. It gets pretty bright in here when we're all in here. We need to be lights out there in the darkness, that's where we're supposed to be at. So Paul tells the church in Philippi, he says, we're to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We're to shine out there. We have to be visible to illuminate, just like that city that's set on a hill. He says, a city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. You can't miss it. And this was an easy one for the people to understand because the city of Jerusalem was built on a hill. It was built on a hill. Everybody saw it. Whenever you went to Jerusalem, you were always going up. Didn't matter if you were coming from the north or the south. When they were going to Jerusalem, people said they were always going up to Jerusalem. It was built on a hill. You could not miss it. The Jews of that day had the light, but they weren't living by the light. Jesus called them blind guides. You guys are blind guides. You're not living by the light. You're leading people into darkness. And if we try to guide people, just in our humanness, in our human wisdom, without him, without his light, then we're both going to stumble. So we need his light to lead others. And I think it's important to note that Jesus uses both a light and a city here. Because you can see a city in the daytime, no problem. City can't be hidden, but lights can be hidden. They have to be used in the darkness. Uh, there may be some lights on during the day. It's kind of like if you fly over you know, if you fly at all and you're looking down on the ground, there might be lights on, but you can't really see them because they're in the light, but they're in the daytime. You can see cities, but you can't see the light. But if you fly over them at night, you can see where the cities are by their light. We're to be those that are like cities. People can see us out there, but we're also be those that shine in the darkness. We use the term rather loosely, but we do live in very dark times. But that just means that the conditions have never been better for our lights to shine. People can see it all the more in these day and age. Um, in John 8, 12, Jesus says, uh, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The majority of the world is walking in darkness because they're not following Jesus. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. We're consistently shocked, as we should be, by the sin that happens in the world. There are things, there are some of the most evil things that have happened in our history happening right now in our country. Um, evil is trying to destroy our children. It's trying to destroy our families. It's trying to break it all up because that is one of the foundational things that God set up to affect the kingdom for good, and it's trying to destroy us. We have the light of life inside of us, but what are we doing with it? That's what Jesus is saying. You have the light inside of you. What are you doing with it? Last week when we went over persecution, I said, you know, you probably wouldn't deny Jesus flatly. If somebody came up to you and said, do you believe in Jesus? You would probably say yes. 
But do we hide those parts of our lives from people? Do we hide our witness? Because if we hide our witness, we're hiding our faith. And we're walking dangerously close to denying our Savior when we're hiding that part of our lives because we don't want to make waves. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, if you're embarrassed about me in front of men, I'm going to deny you before the Father. Don't hide your faith. Many people will reject Jesus, but just remember, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus inside of you. Because if you just change your behavior, there wouldn't be a problem. They would accept you just fine if you just changed the way you lived. But because we're salt and light, they reject us, but they're rejecting Jesus inside of you. Uh, But all we're called to do is shine, right? We're called to shine. The Holy Spirit does the saving. And Jesus says something here that stumped me for a longer time because it doesn't sound right. He says, if salt has lost its taste, if salt's lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men's feet. Now, does salt lose its taste? We talked about how salt speaks of permanence, right? A long-lasting covenant. Well, I did some research, and in that part of the world, salt was, was, you know, collected in two ways. You had the Dead Sea, and then you had these salt cliffs all around that area in the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is, is the saltiest lake in the world, sea in the world. 34% is the salt content of the Dead Sea. You can literally float on top of the Dead Sea with no effort at all. So that's why nothing lives in there. It's completely dead. Nothing, and that's why it's called the Dead Sea. Nothing lives there. But one day, because it's got everything flowing in it, but nothing flows out of it. Lots of analogies there. But one day, one day, it will flow again, and life will come through the Dead Sea. It's going to be awesome. But I've already said it before. The ocean is my happy place. That's where I love to be, on the beach. The salt content of the ocean when we go to the ocean, everybody jumps in, right? Inevitably, somebody says, you know, salt water. I love it. But they don't like it. Three and a half percent is the ocean salt content. Three and, so 10 times in the Dead Sea is the salt content. So you can imagine when you go to the ocean, you get that mouthful of water, what it would be like over in the Dead Sea. So what they would do is they would collect some of that water, let the water evaporate, and then the salt would be left. Or they would dig it up out of the cliffs. Um, you know, during my research, this is funny. This doesn't have anything to do with anything, but... In, did you guys know there is a salt mine museum in Hutchison, Kansas? It's weird. Under the ground, they have dug mines. It's very cool. So the next time you're in Hutchison, you might stop by the salt museum there. Um, but sometimes what would happen is they would dig up the salt, they would crush it, they would pound it, and we'd get it all prepared, but it wouldn't pass the taste test. Sometimes it would have no taste at all, or it would have a bitter taste to it. And what had happened is it had become contaminated by the other minerals in that area. So when they dug it up, if it was mixed in with some other minerals, it was contaminated, it would lose its effectiveness. And it wasn't good for anything at that point. It wasn't good for food. Couldn't throw it in the garden, obviously. So you would just throw it out in the street. Um, and when Christians become contaminated by the world, we lose our, fla- our flavor. We lose our purifying and our preserving effect. And just like those nasty burgers, you put them right next to each other and it gets infected. It doesn't take long before it's worthless. Um, We can't be a source of purity in the world if our purity is compromised. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.27, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself become disqualified. What does that mean, disqualified? Does it mean that he lost his salvation? Does that mean we can lose our salvation? No, that's not what it means. A lot of prominent, here's what it means. A lot of prominent Christian leaders 
have fallen. They have become contaminated and soiled by the world. And as a result, they have lost their influence. They've lost their ability to be a purifying or a preserving influence. And so their reputation gets trampled by foot, you know, underfoot. Uh, gets trampled by men because they have become contaminated. A Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, puts it this way. He says, some have observed foolishly that it is an ill omen to have the salt spill towards us, when really it's an ill omen if the salt falls away from us, if we are to lose our saltiness. That's really the ill omen, because if we become um, tasteless, if we lose our salt, we're not going to be good for the kingdom. Does that make sense? doesn't mean we lose our salvation, but we lose our effectiveness, what we're supposed to be in the world, our influence. Here's somebody who understands this principle very well. This is Peter, 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. And if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was once cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's saying, make your calling and your election sure by having these qualities in your life. And when you will, you will avoid corruption and you won't fall. So why are we supposed to do these things? Jesus says that we do these things so that people will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. They can hear the things that we say. They can see the things that we do and how they match up and see our good works and glorify the Father. Not doing good works for our own recognition. Um, you know, Jesus said of the Pharisees, he said, they go out on the corners and they, sh- you know, they shout at people that they're going to be giving money away, they're going to be giving to the poor. They pray really loudly on the street. They have their reward. That's their reward. Everybody looks at them, thinks they're great, pats them on the back. That's their reward. We want to point people to the Lord, to God, and that will be our treasure in heaven. We're not taking it for ourselves. We're pointing people to his power and his grace. We're showing the world what he's done in us and through us so that we can be salt and light. And the consequences of living this out are are life and death. Uh, Life and death for us, life and death for people around us that we come in contact with. The connotation that Jesus is making here is you are the only salt of the earth. You are the only lights of the world. It is up to you guys. You are the church collectively, and you need to do something collectively to affect and influence this world for godliness. One grain of salt isn't going to do a lot of good, but a whole lot of salt can do a whole lot of good. Um, Somebody said once, they said Christians are kind of like manure, you know? If you spread them out, they do a lot of good, but all clumped up together, they start to stink, so we're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to be like salt that's spread around. We're not supposed to just be all clumped together. 
Also, that salt is only good if it makes contact with the stuff that it's supposed to preserve. We can be salt, but we're still not any good if we don't come in contact with the world. We're to be out there preserving. Um, so are we salty or are we tasteless? Are we, are we shining our light or are we hidden? So you say, well, Nathan, how do we live this practically? Um, there are two types of faith in the Bible. Uh, there is an active faith, and then there's also a passive kind of faith. Now, passive faith gets kind of a bad rap, so I'll kind of define what I mean by that. Passive faith um, means that, you know, we are praying, we are fasting, we are worshiping, we are trusting in the Lord, and we're waiting on Him. That's kind of a passive form of faith. Sometimes God says, you need to pray, you need to wait, you need to be patient. This is my battle. I'm going to be the one that fights it. You need to be one that waits, that prays, that fasts. It's kind of like long-range artillery. We're kind of lobbing faith bombs at the enemy at that point. And sometimes that is what he wants us to do. Other times we're to be active. So I want you to get in there. Now is the time. You need to do something. I'm going to go with you when you do it. I'm going to work through you. But now is the time that you need to be active and get into the fray. Now, what happens a lot of times is people put themselves in either one camp or the other. They say, I am a passive faith person. That's just my relationship with God. That's how he uses me. And then there are, you know, there are times when God says, I need you to be the hands and feet. I need you to go do that practically. But we've already placed ourselves in the passive faith category. And so we don't do it. We don't activate it. And then other times we say, listen, God meets me when I do. I go do it and he meets me there when he may be saying, you need to wait. You're going to be like a bull in a, in a shop at that point, trying to mess things up with your activity and what I need you to do. So um, that's, that's kind of me. Who, who are the passive faith people in here? Do we have any, anybody willing to visit passive faith people? That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And then the active faith people. The, those are my people, the active faith. It's kind of like the ready, fire, aim crowd, right? And Alicia does a really good job of kind of really, you know, have you prayed about this? I'm like, well, let's do it. We'll pray after we get started, you know. But she, she reels me in. And what we need to do, we need to start out with prayer. We need to start out passively. We need to seek his will and how we should act in that situation. Are we supposed to be salt shakers in this situation? Or are we to be, you know, lighting the lamp? Are we to be flames in this situation? Um, and that takes, you know, being in step with the Spirit. It takes hearing from the Lord, having that discernment, getting in the word, praying. And once we know what we're supposed to do, we need to be obedient. We need to go do it. Whether we're to be passive and let God fight the battle, or if we're to be ones that get into the fray. Salt and light are both different, but they're both necessary. Jesus didn't say some of you are salt and some of you are light. He didn't say that. He said, you are all salt, you are all light. But... There are different applications, and you need to know which one it's to be. But to do that, we have to be in step with his will. Salt is passive. It's working under the surface, right? You can't necessarily tell that it's there, but it's having its influence. Salt is, you know, light is direct. We're not to be LED lights, though. You know, like we're not supposed to blind people with our light. We're to light a lamp. We're to be those that guide people back to the truth. That's how we're supposed to operate. Uh, so what I would encourage you is this week, as you're facing situations, when you're walking into things, pray, ask God, is this an opportunity for me to be salt or do I need to be light in this situation? Do I need to be passive or do I need to be active? I don't want to be out of step with his will. God can use all of it. But I want to know personally how I'm supposed to act. So I would just encourage you this week, pray, 
Start out passively and then find out if he wants to continue that way or if he wants you to be active. If he does, then commit and go for it. We'll bring glory to our Father who is in heaven.